0: I want to talk to you this morning about The Bigger and Better Cure. One of the mistakes that all of us can make is that we think we've seen and understood something which is so very obvious but we've actually got it completely wrong. I read of an office manager who decided that he would save some money in his department's annual budget when he saw just how much his company's normal contractor wanted to charge them for replacing a light bulb. He decided to dispense with the usual health and safety regulations and do it himself and so he ordered a replacement fluorescent tube online, had it delivered to his office and fitted it himself. But one thing he hadn't thought about was what to do with the old tube. At six foot long he couldn't exactly leave it in the waste paper basket or put it through his shredder, which were the only two options he had in the office. So he decided he'd take it home, and uh, he'd probably take it to the local recycling centre at the weekend. So at the end of the day, he picked up the tube and left the office and headed for home. But it, it was as he was walking to the underground station that two thoughts popped into his head. The first was, why had he not put the tube inside the box? That the replacement tube had come in. And it was going to be more tricky on a crowded tube train than he'd thought about previously. Taking the tube on the tube was not going to be easy. When he got on the train, he decided to stand and hold the tube upright beside him. To both his horror and amusement, other people started to get on the train. And they also took hold of the tube, thinking it was an upright handrail. He couldn't bring himself to point out their error. And the time came when he got to his station where he would get off and several people were still holding the tube. So he decided simply to let go of the tube, leaving three other people holding onto it and got off the train now i don't know whether that is a true story or not i have a suspicion it might be a bit much to be true Um, a mischievous side of me rather hopes it is true but you can see that you can have a good grip on something and you think you know exactly what it is that you're holding on to but you can be completely wrong and That's how it was on the day when Jesus began to notice some scraping noises above his head and bits of dust and plaster started to come down on top of him from the ceiling as a group of men, Mark in his gospel tells us there were four of them, begin removing tiles from the roof so that they can lower down their paralysed friend who's strapped to his bed and get him to the feet of Jesus in the midst of the crowded house where Jesus has been teaching. It must have been pretty terrifying for their poor friend as he hung on for dear life. It seems that Jesus really spent no time talking to any of the faces that were looking down at him from the roof above his head, or really getting to know the man who now was very glad to be on the floor in one piece, looking up at him. Jesus knew that these men had gone to all of this trouble because they earnestly believed that this man, Jesus, could heal their friend. And as this story unfolds, I want to invite you to learn with me three important lessons. This story. And the first thing that we see from what's already happened is that Jesus knows your heart and perceives your thoughts. The first point we need to consider uh, we find in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus saw their faith, he, he was able to see it in them. And then just a few verses later, at verse 22, He perceives the thoughts of the Pharisees who are convinced that this pronouncement of the forgiveness of of sin amounts to blasphemy, and we'll come on to that shortly. But Jesus knows your heart and perceives your thoughts. Now, to be presented with this truth is both terrifying and it's wonderful. Why is it terrifying? Well, it's terrifying because the Bible teaches very clearly that every man and woman, every boy and girl is born in sin and is filled with all kinds of wickedness. And so if Jesus knows my heart and perceives all of my thoughts, that's not a good position that I'm in. Now, it is true that by God's grace, few of us are ever as bad as we could be. But because of our sin, none of us are anywhere close to being as good as we should be, nor can we be. And regardless of how good you might think you are, and no matter what you might do to try and demonstrate some form of goodness, none of us will ever meet up to the requirements that God has in terms of righteousness and holiness. The big mistake that most of us make is to compare ourselves with each other. Uh, You come up with your own rating system. I'll come up with mine, by which you decide whether you are basically good or really quite bad. And no matter what you've done, no matter what your life has been like, you usually manage to formulate a method of assessment which will place you in the basically good category, as will I. Funny that, isn't it? Imagine what the roads would be like if the driving test was self-assessment. I can imagine some of you thinking that would be fantastic. Maybe I'd pass first time. But I think there would probably be several fewer people watching this morning if that was how the system worked. We have independent examiners in all walks of life. And we do so for a very good reason when it comes to the state of your heart and the condition of your soul and the thoughts of the thoughts and intents of every spoken word every action there is one who is an independent examiner of every aspect to our being he knows your heart he perce- perceives your thoughts nothing escapes him and the the pass or the fail lies with him and because the lord jesus christ is the all-wise all-knowing and eternal god he is able to say with complete accuracy as he looks down upon this world there is none righteous not one there is none that does good at least not with a goodness which lives up to the standards of god's perfect goodness All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Christ sees in the hearts and minds of men and women in this world. You may not think you've fallen short of the glory you ascribe to yourself, but I'm afraid that's not the test you have to pass. There is no self-examination. And it isn't the case, I'm afraid, either, that you're not quite good enough, but never mind. The nature of our sin before such a holy God is such that the state of your life in your sin, as mine is in my sin, this is abhorrent to God, and it brings his awful and eternal punishment upon you, as it has upon me. Sin is not a small matter in God's eyes. And our proud, selfish, arrogant, covetous, jealous, unforgiving, deceitful souls are abhorrent to God. Be honest with yourself. How easy can you find it to tell lies, to harbour thoughts of jealousy? How quickly can you maybe lose your temper or show a lack of courtesy? And even if you struggle to see that you're really so bad, well, if you're someone who in your sin never misuses the name name of God or Christ as a swear word, I'd be amazed. It seems to me that everybody does that now. And I can guarantee it that when it comes to loving God, loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, most of you in your sin, you never, you never even give him a passing thought in a typical day. But the fact that Jesus knows your heart and perceives your thoughts in our sinfulness is terrifying, but it's also wonderful for this reason. This same Jesus, who is the one who judges you, Is also the one sent by the Father to save you. This same Jesus who will find you guilty has come into the world to free you and save you from the condemnation which hangs over you. This same Jesus who pronounces the penalty for sin as death has come into the world to die in your place so that all of your sins which he knows in your heart and perceives in your thoughts, every last one of them may be laid upon him as he takes them to the cross for you in your place as your substitute. And the command of God is to look to Christ and repent and believe and trust by faith. To turn from your sins, to believe in him, trust him. Cry out in for mercy to him. To see that he is the saviour that you need. And that from this day forward you will follow him as your Lord. And he knows and he perceives the thoughts of your heart. He recognises true repentance. He knows saving faith when he sees it. And he's promised that he will receive you. And never cast you away. He will forgive you all of your sins. God the Father will receive you as his child. And love you forever. Nothing will ever be able to separate you from him and his love. Not even the coronavirus. And in the kind of world we're living in right now. There is nothing that even comes close to this. How is your heart this morning? Where are your thoughts this morning? And particularly, what do you think of Christ? What will you decide? Jesus knows and perceives the thoughts and intent of your heart. And secondly, this story teaches us that there is a bigger and more urgent need uppermost in the minds of most most people right now is either avoiding coronavirus if you haven't yet had it or recovering from it if you have. And governments of every p- political color and persuasion all around the globe have had to push to one side all of their various agendas in order to deal with that which they perceive to be the biggest threat right now against their nation and against their people. And perhaps you feel and think just like them. But the Bible tells you that there is a bigger, constant problem. In the midst of all of this upheaval, there are individuals, there are families, there are communities who are already caught up in their own desperate struggles, physical and mental illness. In some parts of the world, floods, famine, war. All over the world. Domestic violence or abuse or oppression or exploitation or families already caught up in bereavement. Nothing to do with COVID-19. But the Bible says they have a bigger, constant problem. This paralysed man is lowered down in front of Jesus. And given that all that Jesus has already done, even though this is quite early in his earthly ministry, his reputation has spread fast. And it's obvious to all what it is that these four men are hoping that Jesus will do for their paralysed friend. It is obvious to all of them what this paralysed man's greatest need is. It is clear to all of them that what it is that Jesus needs to do will be the very best thing that Jesus could ever do for this man. Except it isn't obvious at all. They've all completely missed it, and they've all got it completely wrong. There is a problem which this man has, which is far greater than his inability to walk. There is something that Jesus can do for this man, which is far greater than restoring the use of his legs. Because there is a realm in which we all live, which continues beyond the grave. There is a God who dwells in eternity in unapproachable light, and so pure is his holiness, and his anger and judgment are directed towards every man and woman, and boy and girl, because of the sinfulness which runs through every part of them and in god's eyes this sin is great wickedness it is a great offense against him the bible tells us that god abhors sin and hates men and women in their sin the boastful shall not stand in your sight says the psalmist in psalm 5 you hate all workers of iniquity and in Job 34 we read there is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves so we are in a dreadful position in our sin the hatred of God is against us and there is no hiding place now these are strong words this is strong language Because sin is not a small thing with God. Sin is so much more than a bit of naughtiness. And all of sinful mankind is facing God's eternal wrath and judgment because of sin. As Christians, we do a great disservice to unsaved people to speak only of God's love and not to tell them the truth about what their standing is before God now, today, in their sin, in which they will remain if they continue in their unbelief. One day, in that unbelief, to stand before the judge of all the world. You don't become a Christian from a point of neutrality before God. You come from a position of severe condemnation into a position of grace and forgiveness. Because the Bible teaches that whilst God's hatred of sin and sinners is fixed, that is only one aspect of God's nature. Because at the same time, God abounds in grace and mercy so much so that those whom he hates in their sin, well, they actually can benefit from what we call his common grace, his benevolence towards all people. He provides their daily bread. He brings the sunshine and the rain, both on the just and the unjust. But his love goes much further than that. So great is his love, so deep his compassion, that God has purposed to rescue sinners from the awfulness of their sin and to save them from his own anger and wrath. This paralyzed man has a problem far greater than the fact that his legs don't work. In his sin, he is the object of God's hatred and wrath. And he's facing a day of judgment. And he's facing eternal punishment. But what a glorious change. As this man now finds himself lying on his bed at the feet of Jesus. The son of God. Who's come into the world to seek and to save the lost. Here is the wonder and the glory of the gospel that God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ stands over this sinful man and instead of pouring down upon him the scorn and anger which he deserves in his sin, instead of that, in Christ, through Christ, that man receives mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because this just and angry God of heaven has also so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, that while we were his enemies and still in our sins, he, the one who is just, might die for us, the unjust, and suffer for our sins. The one who himself knew no sin became sin. For us, demonstrating God's love towards us, so that through him we might be brought back to God and reconciled to God, be made righteous in his sight, that we might not perish as our sins deserve, but have everlasting life. That's what Jesus has come into the world to do, and at the feet of Jesus lies this paralysed man. And Jesus sees the bed and Jesus sees the paralysis. But he sees something of far greater and eternal consequence. Jesus sees that this man has a far bigger and more urgent need than his inability to walk. Jesus is filled with compassion towards him. Now, says Jesus, about your sin. And he brings to that man a bigger and better cure. Your sins are forgiven you. Just five words. And in an instant, they will change this man's standing before the living God no longer hated and despised and condemned but now loved and accepted and brought near no longer god's enemy now god's child no longer is hell beckoning beyond the grave but the glories of heaven now await him compared to this the paralysis can wait what's more important what your life will be like for the next 20 30 40 years or where you will spend eternity the religious leaders who were in the crowd were horrified at such blasphemy because they knew only too well that god alone can forgive sins But whilst they were correct about the forgiveness of sins, they were wrong in their accusation of blasphemy. The question Jesus asks in verse 23 is not a trick question. He expects them to reach the same conclusion that you do when Jesus asks which is easier for him to do, say that his sins are forgiven or to say that he's healed of his paralysis. The the reasoning here is easy, isn't it? It's straightforward. If Jesus declares his sins to be forgiven, there's no way for us to know whether or not that's actually happened. Jesus can't prove that his sins have been forgiven; we can't prove that they haven't. But if the issue is whether or not this man's paralysis has been healed, well, all will be clear. And beyond any doubt, this man either will walk out of that house or he'll have to be carried out still on his bed. And Jesus knows that it is obvious that if this paralyzed man is to receive immediate and total physical healing, then that can only be achieved by the power of God. As is true for the forgiveness of sins. Both of these things require the power of God, can only be achieved by the power of God. Therefore, if Jesus can do the one, then he can do both. And he can. So he proves it and heals the man. Now this world has a far bigger and more urgent need than coronavirus. You have a far bigger and more urgent need than the issues around coronavirus. The best thing that the Lord Jesus Christ could ever do for you is not perhaps what you might think it is. Because there is a realm in which all of us live which continues beyond the grave. There is a God who dwells in eternity in unapproachable light, so pure is his holiness. And his anger and his judgment are directed towards you because of the sinfulness which runs through every part of you. And in God's eyes, this is great wickedness. It is a great offence against him. The Bible tells us God abhors sin and he hates men and women while they're in their sin. This is the position that that I found myself in. But this just and angry God of heaven has also so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world, to save people and rescue them from that position that they're in. That while you were his enemy, and while you were still in your sins, he, the just one, might die for you, the unjust, and for me, and suffer for your sins. The one who himself knew no sin becoming sin for you, demonstrating. God's great love towards you, so that through him you might be brought back to God and reconciled to him, that you might be made righteous in his sight, that you might not perish as your sins deserve, but instead have everlasting life, that you might be forgiven. In the end, what was it that made the difference between the two main groups of people in this story, it was what Jesus could see in their hearts and in their minds. It's what he knew and perceived was within them. Jesus knows your heart. He perceives your thoughts. In the religious leaders, Jesus saw only anger and unbelief. But it's wonderful. When Jesus sees faith, as he saw it in this man's four friends and in the man himself, true, saving belief and trust in Christ, real faith is always rewarded. and Christ knows it when he sees it. In Jesus Christ, the love and the mercy and the grace of God is revealed from heaven for you, and it can be yours. In Jesus Christ, the answer to your biggest and most urgent need is provided by the God of the Bible, who has secured for you, through the death and resurrection of his own Son, the bigger and better cure for your biggest and most urgent need. Jesus knows your heart. He perceives your thoughts. What will you make of this Jesus this morning as you sit before him? What does Christ see in your heart as you consider him?